Welcome to the 225th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are an overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, our look at week one of college football, and our weekly look at Major League Baseball action. So let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com, and we will start in Major League Baseball, where Patrick went 1-3 with his weekend series predictions. Moving over to college football, Patrick flipped the script and went 3-1 and one in those predictions. And then moving on to U.S. Open action in ATP predictions, Patrick went 4-0. and oh, And in WTA predictions, he went 2-2. Two and two. That means Patrick went 10-6 and six combined. That brings him to a 788 and 525 overall record, a 60% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on your very substantial weekend predictions. Well, there are way too many games for me to go into any depth, especially in uh, MLB, but I will start there anyway. Uh, I had no rhyme or reason to pick the way I did. I just picked teams I thought were playing better at the moment, and it didn't go very well. It's interesting because a lot of these series were division leaders against wild card teams, and actually all of them were division leaders against wild card teams, although I don't really count the Guardians as a wild card contender, but Starting there, that's the series I thought was going to be the most obvious. Uh, I wanted to pick Dodgers-Braves, but it was four games, so I didn't end up picking it. Instead, this series slid in here, and I thought, well, there's no way I'm picking against the Rays playing the Guardians. I mean, you know, the Guardians had already kind of pulled out of everything, decided to sell at the trade deadline, and then all of a sudden they got all their players that they wanted off of waivers. So they kind of bought back in for a little bit of a half a week, and then... I don't know. I didn't think that would motivate them enough, but apparently it did. They took the first two of the series. The Rays took the took the uh, series ender on Sunday to avoid the sweep. Same thing happened to the Twins and the or same thing happened to the Rangers and the Phillies. Uh, the Twins took the first two from the Rangers. The Rangers fought back, walked off the game on Sunday uh, to avoid the sweep, but still lost that series. And again, another team the AL leading their division against a wild card. To, well, the Twins actually are a wild card team. They are the other division leader, but they play like a wild card team because the record isn't actually that good. Definitely worse than most of the teams the AL East. And the Brewers, who are a division leader, took two or three from the Phillies. This was the one time where I did pick the team with the lower overall record, um, but the Phillies not able to claim that series. I thought the Brewers kind of magic, I guess you could say, would just run out because they've been playing so well for so long to kind of open up the division lead over the Cubs and the Reds that they had, but it didn't run out. Instead, it was the Brewers who still took two or three from the Phillies, took the first two games seven to five, lost the Sunday game, uh, but that was enough. And then the Orioles were the team that would uh, break my losing streak there. Uh, their Sunday game with the Diamondbacks was the decider in the series, and they took that game uh, to give me one series win in MLB. But Obviously, was a lot more focused on college football, which started off with a win for me on Thursday. Number 14, Utah beat Florida 24-11. More on that later. Uh, number 10, Washington beat Boise State 56-19. I don't know how much more we're going to talk about it later, but we'll talk about it a little bit at least. Uh, number 21, North Carolina beat South Carolina 31-17. Uh, those three games all being wins for me. And then finally... My preseason playoff pick, or one of my four preseason playoff picks, Florida State, number eight in the country, beat number five LSU, 45-24. Uh, Washington, Boise State was the least close to my weekend predictions, but look, I only had so many games to choose from. We'll talk about a game that I avoided picking for a reason um, in a little bit, but 
there were so many games that were in that 12 to 13, 14 and a half point range with ranked teams in them. And I didn't really feel like picking a game that I thought would be uninteresting between unranked teams, i.e. I'm looking at you, Minnesota and Nebraska. Um, You know, I didn't think an Iowa-Utah State game would be a very compelling game to predict. So I went with Boise State and Washington. You know, maybe Boise could conjure up some good performances and keep that game close. They actually were pretty close throughout the first half, but Washington's passing attack just broke out after Michael Penix threw a long touchdown, and that was kind of the end of the game. Um, but in the end, I'm very satisfied with my weekend predictions. That loss, or sorry, that game with Florida State and LSU was the only one I got wrong. Um, but look, as I said on the on the preseason predictions, they were going to lose one of the games to LSU or Clemson. That was my original prediction. They were going to still make the playoff, though. I picked the game against LSU because I thought it would make it easier for me to do the rest of the math for them to make the ACC championship game. And uh, as we'll talk about in a second, the way Clemson looks, it doesn't look like it looks like I'll be right with that one, and maybe they might even run the table considering what's in front of them on their schedule. Um, but then in men's tennis predictions at the U.S. Open, number 14, Tommy Paul beat Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, uh, 6-1-6-3-6-0-3-6-6-3. That one I got right. I got all of these right, so no need to keep going on that. Number 10, Francis Tiafo beat number 22, Adrian Menorino, uh, 4-6-6-2-6-3-7-6. That was a really interesting match, actually. A lot of long rallies between the two. Manorino, not a guy to hit the ball into the net that much. A very, very steady player, not very aggressive on how he hits his shots. And Tiafo able to kind of rally back and forth with him, which was a very interesting, made a really interesting match overall. Um, Then Dominic Stricker beat Benjamin Bonzi. Then you have Novak Djokovic, who finished things off against his fellow countrymate, Laszlo Jarrett. Um, and that was how I went 4-0 there. Those games, I believe, were those matches were all to get to the round of 16. Now we're already going to be in the quarterfinals once once the final matches end tonight, so we're uh, getting very far in the tournament. Don't know if I'll be predicting semifinal games or not, haven't decided yet, uh, but if I do, those would be the last predictions of the Grand Slam calendar for a while because I believe the next one is the Australian Open in January, I think is how that works. A lot of them are summer tournaments. Um, or maybe the French, I don't remember. And then WTA, Carolina Muhova beat Taylor Townsend. I predicted that one correctly. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki beat Jen Brady, which I predicted wrong. Both of those players coming back from injuries. Kind of similar stories, so very hard to uh, predict who would win. They're very, very similar, um, not upbringings, but stories heading into the tournament with not playing in a while, dealing with a lot of rust, but still playing really well. I picked wrong on that one. Number six, Coco Goff beat Elise Mertens. And then Sorana Kirstea upset Alina Rybakina, uh, and she was the number four player in the or number four seeded player in the tournament. So that was a big, big upset uh, early on there by Kirstea, who has still continued to win and moved on all the way into the quarterfinals at this point. Um, so a good tournament though at the U.S. Open. Very, very fun matches all around. I've been loving watching it, although college football has definitely distracted me from watching it. Also, some Braves Dodgers games that have been very interesting as well. Okay, well, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday, so be sure to check them out. Um, And speaking of that distracting college football, let's take a look at college football week one action. Starting, Patrick, with uh, what you thought the best games of the week were. I will start with number 21, North Carolina, taking on South Carolina. North Carolina got out to a fast start in this game, uh, took the lead with the first score, to make it 7 to nothing, and then South Carolina came back, had a few good moments in the first half, 
Uh, by halftime, though, North Carolina had a 17-14 to lead, and North Carolina would open up the third quarter with 14 straight points. South Carolina would not respond until they got a field goal in the middle of the fourth quarter to make it 31-17, to which was the final score, but not enough um, from South Carolina, and that would be a theme this weekend for the SEC. It's actually very funny. The conferences who are, well, the ACC is kind of in a middle ground because there have been rumors of their top teams leaving, but nothing substantial while there have been confirmed reports of obviously them adding, by the way. Haven't talked about that realignment that much, I don't think, with Cal, Stanford, and SMU joining the ACC in the future. We will obviously talk about that at some point. Um, it'll come up naturally, but for now... It's interesting that the SEC is, you know, the conference that, frankly, probably, honestly, relative to preseason expectations, I think the SEC looked the worst out of any of the conferences because they had three marquee matchups and they lost all three of them. Um, And we will talk about that later, well, the other three matchups, but this was the first of those matchups. South Carolina, only a two and a half point underdog. It was a neutral site game that, I mean, it was in Charlotte, but I believe geography-wise, not that familiar with the Carolinas, but I believe it's not that far away from either college, from either of the colleges. Um, so not a huge home home field advantage either way. South Carolina seemed to have a good turnout at this game, unlike LSU at the LSU Florida State game that we'll talk about later. Um, but speaking of those ACC schools, first conference game of the season, the ACC had some interesting action on Thursday. Georgia Tech went down 6 to nothing in the first quarter, then rallied back, scoring 28 points in the second quarter, but then didn't score until the really, really late points of the game. Uh, Louisville ended up having to come back, but they did end up beating Georgia Tech 39-34, to uh, despite being down 28-13 to at the half. They got, I believe, 26 unanswered points to take that lead, and then Georgia Tech came back eventually. But look... Louisville, we've talked about this so much. Their schedule is ridiculously easy. They can win like this all year long, and the way that the rest of the ACC is looking, I don't think they're necessarily going to be in the conference championship game, but they're going to be in the top half of the conference even if they play at this level, despite the fact that this was not a very strong performance. Um, But at the same time, like I said, that schedule is so easy, I don't see how they don't end up near the top of the conference. Uh, And then you have Houston, who beat UTSA 17-14. This matchup carrying slightly less hype than it did last year because both teams are expected to be a little bit worse. Houston not getting as much hype because, I mean, really, a lot of preseason buzz around a lot of teams is also based on forecasting how they will do. People don't want to rank teams in the top 25 even even when everybody has a 0-0 record just because they think, looking at the schedule, this team could only win five or six games. Frankly, I think there were a few members of the media out there who would have ranked Florida out there had they not been forecasting a little bit into the future and looking at their schedule and kind of seeing this is a little bit of a tough schedule, not going to be very good for them. And I think that's kind of what happened with Houston. I don't really think they're much worse than they were to start the year last year. They're just in a better conference, so they're not going to look as good. Um, And this matchup last year had both teams, I think, in the preseason top 25, but this year, not as interesting. UTSA just being a little bit on the outside looking in there and Houston, obviously in the Big 12, so not getting that buzz preseason because everybody thinks they're going to be at the bottom of that conference. So whether they're more talented or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, they definitely aren't more talented than last year anyway, though, because they lost Clayton Tune and tanked out of the NFL. But Houston, regardless, comes out with a 17-14 to victory. Can't say I watched much of this game because it was on concurrently with a lot of other good games. Um, but Houston did play a good game in this one, and they deserve that win. Yeah, not only did they play a good game, they had a nice little tribute to their uniforms. They wore the uh, old Houston Oilers colors, uh, Tribute to the Love You Blue era back of Houston football. So 
that was pretty cool to see. Uh, one of the more interesting opening weekend uniform tricks that were played. Yeah, I like baby blue uniforms, so I did like seeing those. I, I did I did see that when I was watching it for a little bit, although I wasn't paying too much attention to the game itself. But I do like those uniforms. Uh, and then you had Illinois. This was, this, well, this was the second best game of week one. There was a better game, but it was an upset, so we'll talk about that one later. Illinois beat Toledo 30-28. to I mean, this was a good showing from Toledo. I, I'm very, very happy with the team that I have going 10-2 and and being the second or third best uh, group of five team overall in the season. From seeing this, they might actually end the season ranked if they go 10-2 and because I had them losing this game not big, but not this close either. Um, I, I had them losing this, you know, maybe seven, ten points, and then picking up another loss in conference. I don't think any team in the MAC is going to beat this team at this point. I mean, that that was a really good showing from Toledo, despite the fact that they lost a very, very close game. Had the halftime lead though, twelve to seven, uh, just not able to finish it off. Illinois coming back in the second half. Luke Altmaier though looked pretty good actually coming in um, from Ole Miss, the transfer who took over for Matt Corral when he got injured, but was replaced. Promptly by Jackson Dart, who obviously Lane Kiffin brought in from USC after he was replaced by Keaton Slovis, and then was replaced by Caleb Williams when Lincoln Riley brought him in, which, if you follow these trails of transfer portal players and all the different quarterback replacements, you can end up in some very odd places such as TJ Finley at Texas State, but we'll get to him later because we will talk about them, um, but that's a different story and you'll see why I want to talk about him later. Yeah, this is one of those games where uh, people might say, oh, Illinois doesn't look impressive. But at the end of the year, I think it's going to be a quality win. Uh, frankly, I wouldn't have been surprised if Illinois lost this game because of how much talent they've lost on their team. So a uh, good character win for Illinois. Um, all right, let's move on to the most impressive teams of week one. I will start with number 14, Utah. Not because of the margin they beat Florida by, but because of the circumstances they had to deal with to get to that victory. Cam Rising not playing, Brent Keithy not playing, and yet, top weapon, your starting quarterback, beat a team by 13, who you lost to at the beginning of the year last year, with both of those guys there. Um, just a very impressive showing from Utah, especially from their defense. Florida had some really stupid penalties, Florida had some really stupid plays in general, but overall, I really liked what I saw from Utah, very happy with their performance, especially considering those were backups that they were mainly playing with. Um, I even liked the two quarterback system they were going to, um, with Johnson running the ball a lot as well, beside Bryson Barnes being a pretty good passer. Uh, they, they look like a team that's actually very, very deep and, frankly, able to deal with injury. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Cam Rising ran into injury issues in the middle of the season, if that's something they were able to actually push through with Bryson Barnes playing. And I think he is the guy who I would assume is taking over after Rising leaves, which... Might be sooner, and maybe that'll be something that they can uh, rely on going into future seasons as well. But for now, I will say uh, there's also a chance that Anthony Richardson might not have gotten enough credit for going 5-7 and seven or whatever they went last year with this team because it's possible that he was the one thread holding them from not being one of the worst teams in the country the way that they looked uh, offensively with Graham Mertz. I'm not, there is definitely a big drop-off from Anthony Richardson to Graham Mertz talent-wise, but the fact that this team beat Utah last year is just crazy to me when you think about how bad they looked in comparison uh, this year. But I'll move on from that and go to another Pac-12 team, which there are a lot of Pac-12 teams here. And I'll talk about number 10, Washington, who beat Boise State 56-19. They went the Georgia Tech route, 
They scored 28 points in the second quarter after being down at the end of the first quarter. Boise State was up 6 to nothing, But there wasn't really a doubt that Washington was going to... I won't say there was ever a doubt Washington was going to come back and win this game. It was just a matter of, was it going to be really close? Uh, could they maybe put it in a place where a few a few bad mistakes might actually cause them to lose the game? But in the end, Washington put up 28 in the second quarter, really easily put the game away, had half of their points at halftime, was up 28, or were up 28 to 12, uh, and then opened it even further from there, scoring 28 in the second half to make it 56 to 19 in the end. Yeah, this is not your father's Boise State teams, but still an extremely impressive performance for Washington. Week one, sometimes teams are sloppy and everything, they look crisp, uh, hitting on all cylinders on offense, and anytime you beat a team, you score 56 points. Uh, it, it's a great showing, but against a team that that's a quality team. Again, not not your old Boise State team, but this is a very impressive um, showing for Washington in Week One. Still one of the better teams in the Group of Five. Maybe are, I mean honestly, with realignment, they might be the best because you know Cincinnati and UCF aren't Group of Five teams anymore. <laughs> so and Norris Houston, who are typically three of the better ones. Um, I, I mean, maybe I think Tulane is probably the best, but outside of the Tulane, out of the out, okay, fine. Outside of Tulane, I think there's kind of a battle for second there and. Boise State will be a part of it, um, but right now they didn't look that part with that. But honestly, Washington's defense was also really impressive to me because we knew their offense was going to put up points. I didn't know they were going to put up this many against this team, but their defense looked especially good as well. Uh, and then you want to talk about points. These next three teams, I was not watching any of these games. I don't think anybody was who wasn't a fan of these teams, but... When you score 70 points, you're going to end up on this list, especially when they made it harder to score points because there's a running clock now. Oregon scored its most points since 1936. Yeah, no Marcus Mariota team, nothing. No Oregon team had scored more since 1936, but Bo Nix and the Ducks put up 81 points on Portland State. Uh, Funny enough, they were actually losing this game 7-0, and I, I, I jokingly... Saw that on the ticker watching a different game. It said, ooh, Oregon on upset alert, obviously. And I really thought that. But they came back with fury. They were up 50-7 to to seven at the half. Probably could have pushed the scoring pace more. Maybe could have hung 100 on Portland State. But they didn't. Uh, ended up 81-7. to seven. Then Oklahoma, they actually did it earlier in the day. They had 28 points in the first quarter. Um, and what's even more impressive about Oklahoma is that they didn't allow a point in the entire game. 73 to nothing, they shut out Arkansas State. And I have one more team on here that also scored 70 points, but the difference is Oklahoma is the only team out of these three that played an FBS opponent. And Arkansas State is not very good anymore, but they were pretty good a few years ago. And they're not they're not one of the worst programs in FBS. They're definitely not one of the better ones, obviously. Not one of the better ones even in the group of five, but they're not shabby. They're not too shabby. So... Shutting out that team while also scoring 28 in the first and ending up with 73 while being up 45 to nothing at the half is very, very impressive, especially when you consider how bad Oklahoma's defense was last year. Definitely the weak point of the team. To come out and send the message with the shutout, that was a very strong message that they sent very impressive with that, or very impressed with that, because, by the way, they were giving up points to really bad teams last year, too. It's not just like that it's not like even last year they were shutting out teams like this. They were not getting close to shutting out teams like this last year. I mean, they gave up like 70 points to TCU. So they gave up a lot of points last year. Uh, Then you have Ole Miss. I thought Jackson Dart looked good, so I put them on here. 73-7 to is the score they won by. Really? 73 points is just what you need to get on here uh, or a good win over a better team. 
um, which is what this team falls into the category of. Speaking of the SEC losing games, number eight, Florida State beat number five, LSU, 45 to 24. There is a scenario in which LSU converts two fourth downs in the first half and LSU wins this game because Florida State is demoralized and maybe down, I mean, what, maybe 31 to 14 at the half and they don't come back. But instead, we live in the world where LSU missed both of those fourth down conversions even after Florida State gifted them those opportunities by making some stupid plays. And all of a sudden, 17 to 14 at the half, Florida State comes out in the third quarter, scores 10 unanswered, takes the lead, doesn't look back from there with their 24 to 17 lead, eventually extends it all the way and wins the game 45 to 24. Um, the reason why I think this team is impressive is because the offense could kept putting their defense in terrible positions and the defense kept responding. The defense kept putting itself in bad positions and it kept responding. Other than really dumb personal fouls and unsportsmanlike conducts for taunting, Florida State pretty much looked flawless in this game and, and, and also some really dumb decisions by Jordan Travis. But outside of two or three of those plays, they looked ridiculous in this game. And it's really no surprise. I mean, they took the best player from Virginia. They added them to their defense. They took the best player from Michigan State. They added them to their offense. They took the best player from South Carolina. They added him to their offense. And they arguably had the best up-and-coming receiver. Not the best pl- not the best receiver, but the best up-and-coming receiver in terms of potential with Johnny Wilson already on their roster. And they also have Jordan Travis and Trey Benson and the most experienced offensive line in the country. There's way too much on this team. I, I mean, this is why I thought this team was a playoff team, and I think this weekend they showed it to the nation. Although I will say, I debated putting them on most impressive teams because this game was really, really sloppy on both ends, um, and I wasn't, frankly, particularly impressed with either team as much as I thought I would be, especially if you had told me Florida State's beating LSU 45-24. to 24. I would not have expected that that was the eye test of the game. So... While I'd still obviously have Florida State in my playoff, I'm not flipping that prediction after they won the one game I thought they would lose this season. Um, I'm a little bit less confident. I'm, I'm not less confident in them making it. I'm just, I'm they played at a lower level than I expected them to, uh, but it was still enough to beat LSU pretty easily. And I think that's an even better sign considering that it doesn't really matter the level that they're playing at. It matters the level that their opponents are playing at against them because even if they're playing poorly, if they can still play quote-unquote bad and beat a team by 21 who's top 10, nobody's beating them anyway. So I was very impressed with them overall when you consider everything in that equation and also the fact that they made so many stupid plays and they were still not only in the game but won the game by so much um, that even if LSU had turned around those mistakes, they still probably wouldn't have won the game by the end. So I was impressed with that from Florida State despite the fact that it was a little bit sloppy on both ends and looked less like a number 8 versus 5 matchup and more maybe like a Big Ten West game with some offense. Yeah, although I think players are a lot faster than Big Ten West offenses. There's, that's the thing. The, that's the thing. They did look uninjured. They they didn't look very impressive on either side in terms of execution or in terms of being playing clean. It didn't look like how Notre Dame or how USC has looked, even how Michigan looked on defense this week, even how Ohio State looked on defense this weekend. But you can still tell that the athleticism on both teams, especially with Florida State, is just off the charts. I mean... The fact that Florida State was running with those with the LSU players pretty much neutralized Harold Perkins, who's supposed to be best defensive player in the country, although LSU kind of schemed him out of the game somehow. But yes, you are right. It, there's a lot. There was a lot of speed. It was very clear that both of those teams are going to be able to hold up in the trenches against very, very good teams and would probably dominate bad teams still. But against each other, they kind of made each other look 
pretty bad, honestly. Yeah, they looked at like times. really talented week one teams. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, you touched on this, Brian Kelly's decisions to uh, really take some pretty big risks in this game. I, I, I Again, I don't want to be a Monday morning quarterback here, but um, you take the points. It's the first game. You show confidence in your defense. I think it shows a little bit of panic, and I've never been a big Brian Kelly fan, but um, I, I'm not just saying this now. In, in hindsight, I was saying it during the game that those were some huge momentum swings. So who knows? How and a little bit of disbelief at. based on how they lost last year, which is something that you shouldn't be showing because you shouldn't be looking at the first game of last year to decide the first game of your next season Correct. as a coach. So Correct. All right, well, let's move off that uh, clash of heavyweights that sort of was an upset uh, because Florida State was a lower-ranked team. And let's talk about the biggest upsets of Week 1. Well, these ones definitely qualify as upsets, but I'll start with Wyoming beating Texas Tech 35-33. to New overtime rules, obviously they've been here for a few years, but they came into play here. Texas Tech forced to go for it in the second overtime after scoring a touchdown in both overtimes. They don't get it. Wyoming has a ridiculous 4th and 7 play that you should go back and watch if you haven't seen it yet, and then converts their 2-point conversion to win the game 35-33. to uh, They deserve that victory. A very fun team that, you know, you look at conference realignment, obviously there are a lot of teams that are very obviously not getting picked up, by bigger conferences, Wyoming is definitely one of them. But these teams are all are always really fun, and they always provide some fun moments in the course of every season because somebody is going to get upset week one by some really bad teams. Wyoming is not a really bad team. They're probably going to make a bowl game this year. Um, but I didn't expect that from Texas. I, I did not expect that Texas Tech was going to drop this game at all. I mean, that that is not something I saw coming. Yeah, I think you had Texas Tech ranked. And maybe 25th, yeah. Well, but. Texas Tech lost this game. Because of their field goal kicker. Yeah. Uh, they lost us on special teams. Um, the other interesting thing to note was... Though it's hard to make 250-yard field goals, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but... The, Asking a lot. Yeah. The uh, the other interesting thing about this game was Patrick Mahomes tweeting Josh Allen um, in the middle of the game that they showed on the game. So that was quite interesting. People forget that... Uh, you've got two best quarterbacks yep. in the NFL came from these two schools that frankly have no good football history whatsoever exactly i mean i'm so, not i'm not even i'm not going to sugarcoat that at all yeah i don't think there was a patrick mahomes or a josh allen playing in this game but a very very entertaining game that's why we love college footballs for games like this um let's move on to your next upset of the week well tyler shuck is definitely not patrick mahomes so you were right about that um there was definitely not a patrick mahomes in this game either but northern illinois went on the road and upset boston college to start the season so Yes, the ACC had some momentum from that Florida State victory from North Carolina beating South Carolina, but as the week went on, the ACC kind of looked worse and worse. I'm not going to lie. The, the later the games got, with the exception of Florida State, the worse things looked, like I said. Northern Illinois should not be a team beating Boston College on the road. I, it just should not happen. These are not... You don't lose by games is kind of the point here, and that's really, outside of two of these games that we'll talk about in a second, the next two games... Well, two of the next three we're talking about. These teams were by games. These were games that you're not supposed to lose at all, and yet these teams lost those games. You can't do that. Um, Boston College losing this one in overtime. On the other hand, not in overtime. Fresno State went on the road and beat Purdue 39-35. Now, interestingly, I was going to put this in best games because if you actually looked at the line on this, it's pretty much the same as the North Carolina-South Carolina line, the same as the Florida State-LSU line. I think Purdue was only favored by three and a half. If you look at my season predictions, I think Northwestern is the worst team in the Big Ten, and yet I still have them beating Purdue. So if you can't tell, I don't think Purdue is very good. But at the same time, I didn't think that they would come out in their season opener and lose to Fresno State. I thought that Hudson Card 
and the rest of their team would be enough, but it wasn't Hudson Card's fault. 35 points is definitely enough to beat a team uh, in the group of five, no matter who you are in the Big Ten. And if Purdue's giving up 39 to Fresno State at home, I can't wait for them to play some of the big, some of the better offenses, although they are in the Big Ten West, so this might be the best offense they face all year. Yeah, uh, Purdue's, uh, Purdue's going to suffer this year. I don't think people understand how good their coach was. Um, and they've had they've, they've lost, uh, what, key wide receivers and their quarterback, and their quarterback. last year. Uh, Fresno State's a good team. And their tight end, by the way. Yeah, Fresno State's a good team, but Purdue, Purdue had their moment. Uh, Purdue might be facing a fate similar to Northwestern in terms of getting uh, being the Big Ten West champion, losing in the uh, losing in that in the Big Ten championship game, and then really having your program fall off a cliff, although for different reasons. But I think Purdue's going to miss Jeff Brom, who who you mentioned earlier had a had a great come from behind win um, in his de- head coaching debut. Uh, at Louisville over Georgia Tech. All right, well, let's move on to another game with a higher-profile coaching debut. Yeah, I don't think anybody knows who Deion Sanders is, so I think you might be wrong about that. But uh, no, obviously. Uh, Colorado came in, pulled off the big upset over number 17 TCU, 45-42. to Now, this one's interesting from our perspective because we both, I won't say we trashed TCU, but when we talked about the Big 12, we talked about the fact that this team might have been the most overrated team in the country heading into the year, despite the fact that they went from national runners-up to 17th in the country. We still thought that wasn't far enough. We both had them, I had. The, I think we both had them 23rd in our preseason rankings, so not much confidence from either of us. Um, Clemson stole TCU's offensive coordinator. The NFL stole their quarterback, running back, best receiver, second best receiver, best corner, best safety. Pretty much everybody on this team was gone. Um, after last year. And the fact of the matter is, TCU might have been kind of the perfect storm for Colorado because they had enough hype that Colorado was being really, really overlooked in this game. But they also had enough kind of production that they were replacing that this team is not very well put together to win games week one because they're replacing a lot of production. And it's not like, you know, it's not like a Florida State, it's not like a Michigan, it's not like even an LSU or a Washington where they have a lot of players in place from last year, so things are a little more seamless transitioning, and it's just kind of, you know, it'll be working out the kinks over the course of the season, but of course, they'll start week one better than most teams because they've been there before. TCU is working out all different players in the same way that despite Colorado having 90 new players or whatever the number was, Colorado, because of the fact that TCU was also so inexperienced and also so, you know, I won't say discombobulated as a roster, but just lacks that cohesion because they haven't played together long enough. Colorado had the perfect opportunity to kind of break this game open, make TCU a little bit panicked, and see how they would respond. And TCU's response was to throw two interceptions in the red zone. Um, And that response was how they lost the game. And then they decided that their defense was so bad it couldn't be trusted. So they went into a shell, and they ran the ball three times in a row with five, with what, four or three, three or four minutes left? trying to ice the game away on one possession rather than getting their touchdown first and then relying on their defense or even getting down in the field goal range and tying the game up. And then as a result, they ended up with a fourth and nine. They don't convert it. And all of a sudden that one play changes. I mean, I won't say a season yet, but I also don't think they were a playoff contender anyway. Um, But it did change the game entirely. It was the whole game for Colorado. That fourth and nine stop is the reason why they won the game. And instead... You have Travis Hunter, Shadur Sanders, even Dylan Edwards floating around in Heisman conversation. Shadur Sanders, though, by the way, looked ridiculous. I mean, you talk about the Pac-12 and quarterbacks. I, I did not think they were going to add a sixth quarterback who looked like a Heisman contender. Uh, then then 
They're not even on here, but DJ Uyagalale looked pretty good for Oregon State, too. The Pac-12's quarterbacks are ridiculous this year. I mean, we've already talked about Penix. We've talked about Caleb Williams last week. Cam Rising is hasn't even played yet. But look, Pac-12 quarterback, Bo Nix, by the way, put up 80 points. The Pac-12 quarterbacks are off the charts, um, and Shadur Sanders is definitely a part of it. Chandler Morris is definitely not one of the better quarterbacks in the Big 12, and as a result... Uh, not really his fault. Definitely the defense's fault. 42 points is more than enough to win a game, but it's the Big 12. And uh, I guess, well, we'll see this matchup again in a few years or maybe even next year. And the score will probably look the same as Colorado becomes more of a Big 12 team every year um, now that they will officially be joining the conference. So they're embracing that mayhem early. Maybe next year it's 55-52 instead. Yeah, you must have been reading my text to my friends uh, during this game saying Colorado's going to fit nicely into the Big 12 again. They're a former Big 12 team. That one will feel natural uh, with them moving from the Pac-12 to the Big 12. But uh, Not quite sure Utah fits in as well. No, but, but a very very, <laughs> enter- very entertaining game for a lot of reasons. Um, I think both you and I felt that TCU might have a little bit of a drop-off this year, and I think, I think that was evident. But uh, entertaining game, and let's see how Colorado handles success uh, next week in their home opener against a team that nobody's going to be giving a chance to win the game. Kind of like them this week when they play Nebraska. All right, let's move on. We've got a couple more big upsets from week one. Well, you did say no one's giving them a chance. They are actually favored. Nebraska is not favored in that game, but they're only three-point underdogs, which isn't that bad considering that Colorado was a 20-point underdog. Speaking of underdogs, Duke, they were a 12-point underdog at home to Clemson. Uh, they won 28-7. to Honestly, I have nothing to say about this game other than the fact that Clemson, once again, is massively overrated heading into a season. People need to remember that this team has lost six games in the last two years. They probably, that's, well, actually, I will phrase this in a different way. They've lost six games in the last two years. That's the, that's the number of playoff appearances they made in the six years prior to that, which, in case you didn't know how hard it is to make the playoff, no two lost teams ever made the playoff, a.k.a. Clemson had lost six regular season games or fewer. I think they had a few undefeated seasons in there as well. In six years prior, and they've lost six years in the last two six games in the last two years. That should tell you that they have started to kind of regress. And the fact of the matter is, we talked about it preseason. I, the, one of the main reasons I picked Florida State over Clemson to win the conference is because Cade Klubnick is not Deshaun Watson, and he's not Trevor Lawrence. He's not supposed to be. He's not going to be. He doesn't have to be either of them for this team to be good. But he does have to be a lot better than he was tonight for them to be de- a decent team. And frankly. This was the first, this was an opportunity to put away the team that's probably the third most or fourth most talented team in the conference. They looked horrible. And I don't think that they're going to beat Florida State at home the way that they played tonight. I don't think that they're going to beat North Carolina if they're even on their schedule at this rate. So Clemson might be looking at a third or fourth place finish in the conference right now, especially with the fact that there are no divisions. Um, but credit to Duke. Their defense looked especially good. They gave up seven points all night, and the only points they gave up were after they muffed a punt on their own 15 or 20 yard line. So yes, Clemson missed a few field goals, but Duke did block one of those field goals. Um, And they also held strong to make sure they had to kick those field goals. So credit to Duke's defense. They played well in this game. Um, Just overall though, really disappointed in Clemson. I'm not, I'm not saying that Duke is like a top 15 team because they beat Clemson. Now I'm more so saying that Clemson might not even be deserving of a top 25 ranking. And frankly, like I said before, we talked about this in our in our previews when we were talking about who's in our top 25s. A lot of teams end up high in the top 25 just off of reputation. Clemson is in the top 10 because they're Clemson. If this roster was shipped off to Happy Valley and it was Penn State's roster and Clemson had Penn State's roster instead and you flipped those two, 
Penn State or Cle- Clemson with Penn State's roster would be top five, and Penn State with Clemson's roster would be fifteenth or fourteenth in the country. But instead, you have the opposite where they get ranked right next to each other, despite Penn State probably having a much better roster because Penn State is Penn State and Clemson is Clemson. It's a reputation thing, um, and in the end. Clemson just didn't look good. They, this is not a top 10 team. It's not a top 15 team. It just very clearly isn't. I don't know how anybody could have watched that game and said otherwise. Their defense still looks good-ish, but frankly, this looks like probably one of the worst defenses they've had also. It doesn't look as fast. It doesn't look as dominant, even against a guy like Riley Leonard, who's going to be an NFL quarterback. just doesn't look any... Nothing looked as good as it has in the past. Um, but if you want to talk about nothing looking as good, you got to talk about Texas State beating Baylor 42-31. to I thought Baylor had an easy enough schedule to be a seven-win team, maybe sneak into a bowl game despite not having that much of a talented roster, but instead they lose to disgraced Auburn transfer T.J. Finley. I mean, obviously, T.J. Finley's actually a pretty good player, but uh, didn't have very good stints at either Auburn or LSU, and instead finds his way here and finally gets a big win over a big team by beating Baylor on the road. Also, Texas State so far has the best catch of the year nominee, which you should Look up later yourselves. Also, very good catch by one of their receivers. Um, But in the end, what matters is that they beat Baylor by 11 on the road, and Baylor is looking pretty bad, Um, especially when you consider the rest of the Big 12. I would argue that other than Baylor, the only team that looked pretty bad this weekend was TCU. I don't think anybody else looked that much worse than preseason expectations. So a bad week for Baylor, a good win for Texas State, although I don't think that's going to carry over much in the rest of the season. No, probably not. Um... And, and let's go back to Clemson Duke really quickly. Um, it's evident that Clemson is living off the uh, luster and the, the brand effect of a few years ago. I agree with you. That team does not pass the eye test. We tried to blame it on the quarterback, uh, DJ, who I won't pronounce his last name, who's now at Oregon DJ State. DJU. Uh, and uh, and Kate Klubnick was everybody's the most popular quarterback on campus, is always the backup quarterback. Now he's QB1 and just uh, a rough start. Um be interesting to see how they rebound from this because if they don't, like you said, Florida State could have a very easy path to the to the playoff game. Um, although we mentioned North Carolina earlier, maybe maybe the Tar Heels are standing in their way. They're well, playing defense. Clemson needs to rebound quickly though because that's their first, That's Florida State's first conference game of the year, and I don't. I th- actually, you know what? They might play one conference game before that, but it's Week Four. They got to find a way to be better quickly because they are nowhere near the level of Florida State right now regardless of where they're playing the game correct all right well uh, that wraps up our look back at college football action for week one Um, let's turn our attention to Major League Baseball with our weekly review starting as always in the American League East this will definitely be a little bit of a shorter review as obviously college football is now the priority and we're we're maybe not in the dog days of the season but kind of the uninteresting part of some of these races although You know what? The AL has some pretty interesting divisional races in it. We will start in the AL East, as always, with the Orioles, who are 85-51, and the best record in baseball outside of the Atlanta Braves. They're now better than the Dodgers, thanks to the Braves taking three or four from L.A. over the weekend. Uh, But the Braves, I mean, sorry, the Orioles, 7-3 and in their last 10, but hot on their heels, the Tampa Bay Rays, they're still only two and a half back. It looked for a while like this, this division lead kept getting bigger and bigger just incrementally, and all of a sudden... The Rays have started to shrink it back down, and now it's been the same for a few weeks. I would think that these two have some series left against each other, and I'm going to check that right now because, well, they're in the same division as each other, so they should play each other at the end of the season. But the fact of the matter is, a few head-to-head matchups towards the end of the season might actually skew this race one way or the other, despite the fact that it looked like the Orioles were going to easily get out there and kind of crush the race for the rest of the season. Um, Although, 
if you do still look at it, the Orioles are still probably playing the best out of any team in this division. I am very happy with how they're playing. I think if you're an Orioles fan, you should be happy with how they're playing. Uh, And they do only have one series left with the Rays. It is at home, but it is a four-game series. So we will see what happens in that four-game matchup there. Likely, if it's a split, I mean, I, I I would be willing to say right now, if it's a split, the Orioles win the division. If the Rays take three or four, the Orioles still probably win the division, but it would be a lot closer. And then if the Rays sweep... Then you're talking about the Rays definitely coming back and winning this division, but we'll just have to see what happens in the rest of the season. Uh, speaking of an interesting race, I'm going to skip kind of the games back in the division thing. Um, I'll go straight to the wild card. The Blue Jays are one and a half back of the Astros. All these results as of Sunday, at the end of Sunday's games, I should clarify. Um, one and a half back of the Astros and the Rangers, who are tied for the final wild card spot. They are eight back of the Rays, who are in the first wild card spot, although. That is looking like a far cry, something that they definitely cannot reach. But 5-5 five and five in their last 10 need to start playing a little bit better if they want to catch up to any of the Astros, Rangers, or Mariners. Two of those teams will be in the wild card. One of them will win the AL West. Um, but, you know, the Rangers have been kind of slowly slipping for a while, so it is possible that the Blue Jays can still catch them. We'll just have to see what happens down the stretch. Then you have the Red Sox. They're the last team I'm classifying as in the hunt. I have the three teams in right now, and then the Blue Jays, and then the Red Sox are the last team I'm leaving in this category. They're five and a half back at 71 and 66. ESPN gives them a 5.8% chance of making the playoffs. I don't think they have a real legitimate chance of making it, but for the sake of argument, they are four and six in their last 10 games, so they need to start playing a lot better if they want to make it soon. And funny enough, the best record in the last 10 games in this division with the Rays and the Orioles, they're tied. It's the New York Yankees. All it took was bringing up every prospect on earth instead of all the aging vets who have not played well for seasons on end now uh, that the Yankees have had. And all of a sudden, Jason Dominguez comes up, hits a homer in his first at bat. Everson Pereira is up. Oswald Peraza is up. Volpe's been up the whole season. I could go on and on. Austin Wells is up. A lot of prospects are up for the Yankees. And the fact of the matter is, They needed a jolt in their offense. It just wasn't working, regardless of the fact that, you know, some of the vets might actually perform better than some of the young guys in the the prospects. It's just that there's no energy with that team at all, and they're finally getting a little bit of that juice back into them. Uh, Maybe we will see if this is kind of the reincarnation of whatever I think year that was. I think it was 2017, where it was the baby baby bombers uh, in the Bronx. We will see if this is that all over again with, you know, Aaron Judge and Glaber Torres. We'll see if that kind of continues on and instead you have it with Peraza and Dominguez and Volpe. I would like to see that, even though obviously I don't want the Yankees to be good because I'm only a fan of the Dodgers and I don't really care how any other team does. Uh, but it would be interesting to see another team have a youth movement. And for all of all the teams, for it being the Yankees would be kind of ironic based on their team identity of mainly being around free agents for a while. But it would be interesting if it happened. I don't know if it will. But for now... They can bask in the glory that they might get back above 500 to end the season, and they might not snap, or they might snap that streak. Might not snap that streak of winning seasons in a row. All right, let's move over to the AL Central. You have the Twins at 71 and 66. That is the same record as the Boston Red Sox. It's the reason why I called the Twins a wild card team earlier because they would barely be in the hunt if they weren't in their division. Instead, the Guardians are six and four in their last ten as well, 66 and 71 on the season. The inverse of the Twins' record. Uh, even though it's not being included in this, the Twins did beat the Guardians 20-6 to today, um, taking a little bit too much, uh, you know, of, a, of an impression of a football game, and uh, that might be what it would look like if the Vikings and the Browns played Week 1 as well, but uh, unfortunately it was a baseball game, 
Um, the Twins still playing well enough, though. I mean, there's just no team in this division that has the talent to challenge them. And frankly, now that I've said that, is it worth talking about the rest of this division? Not really, but I will say this. The Royals, after today, don't have the worst... Sorry, the Royals do have the worst record in baseball because the A's swept the Angels, um, which that's a good preview of the next division we're about to talk about. So I guess I'll just transition naturally into that one. Best division race by far, it's the Mariners on top. Uh, ESPN gives them an 85% chance to make it. They are one game ahead of both the Rangers and the Astros who are playing each other right now. Very fun. The first matchup of the series is Verlander against Scherzer. How ironic. Both of the Mets trade traded players from the deadline facing off against each other, basically with the division on the line. Uh, but instead of the NL East, it's the opposite. It's the AL West. Um, but look, a very interesting division race. Julio Rodriguez's month of August is really the thing that put the Mariners on top here, player of the month in August. Um, just like the Dodgers opened up their big lead in the West behind Mookie Betts. The Mariners came back into this race and are now in control of this race because of Julio Rodriguez's big August. And instead, you have the Rangers and the Astros tied for second. Uh, I still think both teams are going to make the playoffs, though, although I-, I could definitely see a world where the Blue Jays catch the Rangers, but I do think the Astros have too much experience um, to lose that one. And then, like I said, the A's swept the Angels over the weekend, taking over second-worst record in the league from the Royals. All right, now let's uh, move over to the National League and start in the East as well. Well, no division race here is very interesting. Um, first of all, in the East, you have the Braves who lead the Phillies by 15 games after going 8-2 and two in their last 10. First team to 90 wins. Uh, only the Orioles are even above the 85-win plateau. They're at, they're at the 85-win plateau, um, while the Braves are already at 90. That is because they took three or four from the Dodgers this weekend, although the Braves had their playoff rotation going. Uh, the Dodgers... Did not. Kershaw was not in that series. I'm not making excuses. The Braves deserve to win that series. Some really interesting games, though. There are two, one extra innings game. Uh, two games where the Dodgers had the tying run up at the plate near the end of the game, but weren't able to have that guy cross. And then there was the news over the weekend with the Dodgers that we'll talk about in a second. Um, but for now, it's about the Braves. 90 wins on the season. Easily going to win this division. I'm honestly surprised they're not, they haven't clinched yet, but I guess the Phillies do have a pretty good record. Speaking of the Phillies, they are in the first spot in the wild card. They are five and a half games clear of the Marlins. Um, and while it's not just the Marlins, we will talk about that in a second. But you know what? We're on the topic of the Marlins. Let's talk about them. 70 and 67. They've started to pull it back together a little bit. They've won four in a row. Um, but despite being five and five in their last 10, they are on that four game winning streak. But that is not enough to separate them from any of the Giants, the Diamondbacks, or the Reds. Yes, that's right. The third spot in the NL wildcard has a four-way tie. There are four teams vying for one spot. And, I mean, I don't think any of these teams are catching the Cubs. They're definitely not catching the Phillies uh, with that five-and-a-half game advantage with less than a month left in the season. But what an interesting situation we have with the Marlins, the Giants, the Diamondbacks, the Reds. Four very, very different teams in terms of their approaches to get here. Um, But just a really interesting race in the wildcard. But... Before I move on to that whole wildcard race, I'll go I'll go over to a division where they're actually kind of guiding that race. Let's move to the NL Central where the Brewers are in the lead. They're three and a half up. This is the closest division race in the NL in the National League, but it still doesn't feel that close. They're at 76 and 60, though. They've been playing very well recently. Uh, the Cubs have been playing well, too, though. They're at 73 and 64. That means that they are still doing very well, better than most of the wildcard teams. They're three games up 
on the um, third spot, that, that wild tie for the third spot. And yet, look, the Cubs are actually closer right now to the Phillies at the top of the wild card and closer, well, as close to their division lead as they are to the third place tie. So not too bad from the Cubs overall um, in the second wild card spot. It looks like they will be a playoff team after all the turmoil they dealt with in the, I guess, the beginning of the middle part of the season. They have finally turned it around throughout the this recent kind of two-month-ish stretch. They've been really, really good for a while now. Um, and then you have kind of 2019 Washington Nationals-esque. And then you have the Reds, who are also in that four-way tie. Obviously, the Reds had that big jolt with Ellie De La Cruz coming up, and all of a sudden, they've kind of fallen off since then. And that, honestly, is the story with the other two teams of the wild card, with the Giants and the Diamondbacks, who had great starts to the season themselves, um, especially when you talk about the Diamondbacks and then have kind of fallen off recently. Um, but look... That race out in the West that I'll talk about now isn't very interesting either. The Dodgers are 14 and a half games up despite losing three out of four over the weekend. Their magic number is getting very, very close. Uh, but look, Giants and the Diamondbacks are at 70 and 67 on the season. It's a very, very close race in the wild card. A four-way tie for third is something that I don't think I've seen this late in the season in a while. But this last month is going to be crazy. It's frankly, for I would honestly say it's first to like 18 wins. I think whoever can go 18 and 10, 18 and 11 over the next month is probably going to claim that final spot. I don't think that any of these four teams are capable of going on super long hot streaks because they all have done it before this season. And I think they've kind of run out of that magic. The Reds did it when De La Cruz came up. The Diamondbacks did it for a long stretch at the beginning of the season. The Giants did it pretty much that same place where the Reds did it. And then the Marlins did it at that point in the season, too. I don't know if any of these teams have that kind of a run left in them. So I really think 18 and 11, 18 and 12, whoever has the easiest schedule, which is probably the Marlins, that's the team that will probably get it. Uh, but it's an interesting debate, though, because the Marlins might have the easiest schedule, but I still think the Diamondbacks are probably the best team on paper. It's very, very close. The only thing that I can say is that I don't think that any of these teams are capable of having two of them make up the deficit on the Cubs. And I think that the Phillies, the Cubs, the Braves, the Dodgers, and the Brewers are all going to be in the playoffs. It's just down to that final spot, in my opinion. Definitely going to be an interesting remaining 29 games between those four teams tied for the wild card. All right, that wraps up our look at Major League Baseball. It also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Monday, September 11th, where we will once again look at back at Patrick's Weekend Predictions look at week two of college football action, and have our weekly review of Major League Baseball. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his MLB Power Rankings that are updated every Wednesday, his picks for next weekend's games that will be posted, as always, on Thursday, and he still has his predictions for the entire college football season posted, all of that, on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number four, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.